Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining. And hello, Jason. Thanks for uh, honoring us of your presence. I'm really, really excited for this conversation. Uh, so for those who don't know Jason, uh, he's uh, formerly awesome MarkOps and now DataOps at Patreon. Um, I'll let you do a quick intro maybe about yourself, uh, your background, and would love to maybe get like the, the one-liner about Patreon for those who don't know and maybe like what could be a little bit specific here because I think it's there's a mix of like PLG, prosumer, consumer. Uh, but yeah, welcome and uh, thanks for joining us. Great, for sure. Um, great to be here. Um, you know, I started out in marketing operations, I guess maybe about eight, nine years ago, uh, joined Patreon about a year and a half. I'd say in a nutshell, Patreon, we help creators get paid. So whether you're a YouTuber, like a podcaster, an artist, um, a musician, really anyone, um, we provide a way for creators to help you to know, connect with their their you know their their patrons um, to help get them paid for their for the art that they're creating. Um, you know, I think definitely you know having been here for about a year and a half now, have seen a lot of just change within you know the whole ecosystem. Not only the creator economy kind of just like continuing to rise, but also just the the maturity of the market overall. It's been it's been you know super fascinating, especially from my perspective um, on the marketing ops data ops side. Um, really just fun, fun place to be at for sure. Awesome. And yeah, maybe talk us quickly through that awesome move that you've made of going from uh, like marketing ops to, to data ops, kind of what, um, I guess, like what led you to, to want to do that uh, for, slight sidestep? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you know, I think um, when I, so marketing operations sat within the go to market function within marketing. Um, but, you know, I think within kind of a very, I would say, it's kind of like we're a B2B, but also B2C. Like you could think of a creator almost in our context as like a business. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are essentially kind of a lot of, we were looking at standing up just different technologies. We were moving from autopilot to another marketing automation um, system. And so, you know, as part of just kind of like the understanding of what data we had available, I had to really just do it like a complete audit of, okay, as a marketer, what do we have? What can we use? Um, and the last sort of like a map that we had, we had, you know, we had had it for about five years. And so there was a lot of just data that was not really relevant or we had created models that were no longer, you know, useful. And so a big part of kind of this sort of work was around just understanding what information we had available. And so, you know, I think, you know, in other organizations I've been at, I feel like a lot of it has just been the data that go-to-market teams use really is just within your CRM um, and understanding that well, actually at Patreon, we have a lot of other information beyond just what we have in our CRM. And so starting to think about, okay, well, where does this data live? Um, what can we use? Like how, like, is this information relevant for sort of like marketing and um, our sales, we call them creator partnerships teams. Um, and then from there it was really just kind of, you know, I I'd worked with uh, my colleagues in data science to really help just allow me to understand what do we have available um, and really there was an opportunity, I would say about six months ago around, hey, you know, there's a lot more need beyond just go to market, um, not only for just understanding what information we have available, but also kind of the, like whether it's documentation, um, creating some light ETLing. Um, we got a, a tool called Workado to help us do some really light sort of ETL data um, pipelines to help connect a lot of data into whether it's both Marketo and Salesforce. Um, Pendo, and so kind of all those sort of things that I was doing that I would argue kind of might lean more towards even I would say like 
you know, more data science, data, even engineering. Um, but that was kind of being done within go to market in my role. There was kind of like, hey, like, should we kind of have these sort of like responsibilities fall under like a more traditional data team? And so that was kind of like when the switch was made, you know, I think a few months ago. And it's been, and I think like from a day to day, a lot of what I'm doing, it's still kind of, yes, still on like the marketing technology side, but I think much more just having a broader understanding of not just only go to market, but also way more just understanding on the product side, um, legal compliance, of course, um, and just really kind of, you know, I think it's still early days for my role here, um, but um, so far it's been, it's been fun. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah. And, and so folks, uh, I mean, as you're kind of starting to, to guess, like today is going to be, a, I think, a very like data oriented kind of conversation. I think the the big elements that we're, uh, we're hoping to talk about, I think, um, you know, uh, Jason started mentioning it, like data is now kind of beyond the CRM. So that's one of the things we want to talk about, like this shift to data centricity uh, and, a, you know, like data heavier go to market model, kind of what that implies from a stack perspective and getting some uh some knowledge from from jason there so uh i'll do the quick usual housekeeping for uh those who haven't been here before um like please use the chat introduce yourself uh chat with folks out there we have some amazing people in the chat along with uh with jason here um i want to say hi to yeah zach and uh the folks at mongo also who are out there um please ask any questions you might have so we have a there's a little question session uh, section, sorry, in um, in Livestorm. Uh, pop any questions that come up in there, and feel free to upvote questions that you think are relevant. What I'll do is, as we go through um, the conversation with Jason, I'll try and pick any question that's relevant, um, ask it on the spot, and otherwise we'll keep some time towards the end to do um, a more thorough kind of Q and A. Um, like the this is like the the giveaway part but yeah for for joining you get lunch on us so that's the exciting part um and now let's get back into uh the content so um what we were talking about just before this jason right we we're saying that there's it seems like today there's a bit of a shift in in organizations that are starting to become a lot more data centric and i think we're seeing that from um you know, not just technology, but I think like people process. And I think your move from like mark ops to data ops is also like a sign of that. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about how you've kind of seen that shift evolve and how, yeah, like this I, realization that there's a lot of data beyond the CRM and what that means for, for your role and for your organization? For sure, for sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, just when I think of this, you know, Marketo and sales, and I kind of, you know, from my perspective, I look at Marketo and Salesforce as two parts of the same coin. And I think, you know, realizing, hey, you can drop your Munchkin code or, you know, your tracking code with Marketo, you can have your sales folks just write all the things and, you know, within the CRM. But the reality is, especially if you have a, you know, software product, there's so much more information about what the consumer, what the, what the, what the prospect is doing um, within the product. And a lot of this information may or may not be relevant for, you know, whether it's a marketer or a salesperson to, to have. And so it's really, I think, um, you know, you want, like, I think having been in other organizations, there's always a desire to have more information um, about the, you know, the, the prospect, the, the lead. But I think at the same time, it's kind of like, you don't want to, there's also like a glut of information. So I think a big part of it is understanding, you know, what what is even feasible. And I think it kind of just really starts with the use case. And I think 
you know, the, the, from my perspective, it is why, you know, we have Snowflakes, um, you know, all these different, um, you know, segments to help us really pipe all this data. But, you know, from my perspective, it's almost like I'd rather really start out with the use case, like, what are we trying to do? Why are we trying to do this? Like, how urgent it is it? Um, and then kind of work backwards. And I think, you know, without, because I think if you kind of just start with like, hey, let's just get all the data. Um, one, we don't know, like, is this data actually usable? And then two, like, what kind of, you know, campaigns, what kind of like tactics are we going to be doing around this information? And then, it, you know, half the things I feel like in a CRM might just be like old data that, you know, you can't really use anyway. And then now you just have like CRM that has some par information and then you kind of just like, <laughs> you can't really do anything with that either at the end of the day. And maybe so what was uh, maybe the first use case that uh, or like the most obvious use case that led you folks to realize what we have in um, like CRM and, and map is not enough. And we have to go beyond that and like tap into uh, either the Snowflake data warehouse or like have some segment data piped into um, one of those systems. Yep. And so I think this really and kind of I would say my sort of move from like more marketing operations to more just data operations is really this. Um, we had a few. So the, we, when I joined last year, we had a few tickets with our engineering team around, hey, basically a, a creator can change their email address within our product. But that email address change wasn't being propagated back into our CRM um, and conversely not being propagated into our into our, our marketing automation system. And so this was just one example use case of, hey, like things are being changed, but it's still, it's actually causing downstream impact where, you know, we're reaching out to people with an email address that they don't want to use. And it's not just, you know, email, it's also, you know, what kind of additional information that we have within the warehouse, such as, you know, how much, you know, like money are they making on Patreon? Like, what are they kind of doing with the platform? Um, sort of like all this additional product utilization metrics. Um, that we just really didn't have in our CRM, and you know, we we had tickets on on this to say, hey, like let's just get this get this live. But you know, when we have an engine engineering team that has like a, such a huge backlog, it becomes very challenging to kind of make the case around, hey, like yes, we you know within go to market really need this, but we just don't have the ability and the resources to do, to do this. So that was kind of what led to. You know, us doing a whole sort of like bake off around should this be a build versus buy? Should we, in you know, if we're buying, what sort of technologies should we procure? Um, and that I think I, you know, I really led that whole charge around that last summer. And I think kind of going through that whole process really helped provide, I would argue, like a degree of trust, I would say, in terms of just, hey, I'm demonstrating basically my chops around understanding why go to market needs these sort of like data pipelines and the, the rationale behind all of it. That makes sense. And um, yeah, and so I think that one's interesting. And maybe we can uh, jump into, I think the, like what this links to is kind of the the stack that you folks have today. And um, so I know there's a question in, uh, in the, the chat about um, what middleware you use, uh, I guess, between Snowflake and uh, the go-to-market tools. And Jeff, let us know if it was more about like how, what's the middleware from the app to Snowflake or from Snowflake to the go-to-market tools. Um, I believe that today is Workado, but maybe you can tell us yeah, how you actually solve that thing of you know having some of that um, product aggregated information pushed back into the CRM. Could it be like how much like the creator is making based on content or things like that? Yep, yep. So I mean, you know, I guess just walking through what we currently have. So we use Amplitude for our product analytics. Um, 
all this information within Amplitude. We stood up like a whole process last summer around getting this information into our Redshift, which was an incredibly big project. Um, so now within Redshift, we have you know just a bunch of tables around product realization, um, and then we also have you know just whether it's Zendesk information, whether it's you know just like what they're actually doing, you know like the just like from a payments perspective, like anything from you know just how much a creator is making on the platform to you know what kind of questions they might have. Um, we use Mailgun for our sort of our transactional product um, focused emails, um, Marketo for our you know marketing. Um, you know, Salesforce, obviously, Pendo for, um, you know, in-app messaging, um, and there's a bunch more. Um, but I think basically the, the thing is, is that we, as much as possible, have everything kind of going into Redshift. Um, and so from Redshift, then it's kind of like, how can we get this out of Redshift and then sort of, you know, into the hands of, you know, really go to market. And so there was a whole, you know, last year, um, with these tickets that we had as a backlog, I created like a whole basically a spreadsheet that was kind of like, hey, you know, what can we actually just build this internally? And our, you know, our head of data science and data engineering, they told me this could easily take a quarter of just like one person's time to just work on. Um, and knowing that, um, you know, go to market teams are really kind of fast and nimble, like they might be trying out something and then it might not kind of work out and we kind of need to really pivot quickly. Whereas I think on the engineering side, there's much more of like build for scalability. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, there was this sort of tension between, hey, in theory, we could do this, but we really, really don't have the time. And so that was kind of where it led to the, you know, the buy decision of, you know, finding some sort of application that could allow, you know, go to market really self-serve. And, you know, it's gotten to the point where, you know, we've used it now, I guess, for like six, nine months, our IT team is actually starting to finally use Workato as well. So I think go to market in this case was sort of like the, the starter, if you will, of like using these like alter alternative solutions. Um, and now, you know, our, our IT team is also starting to uh, utilize it as well. Yeah, I think this is an interesting one because I think that uh, anything that's ETL or now how like ELT as the cool kids call it, uh, that whole thing is something that is not super exciting to engineers. I feel like there's very little pushback on actually bringing in a tool that's going to do it because nobody wants to maintain a data pipeline from like one system to another. Uh, and I do feel a lot of companies um, struggle with kind of in-house uh, solutions. And I think it's interesting to see that for you folks, like Workato is starting to spread across the organization because people are starting to realize, oh, this actually makes it super straightforward to push stuff um, into the systems and potentially, um, you know, move even into the uh, original data warehouse. But so to make sure we get uh, Jeff's question, because he did mention it was bi-directional. So it's like, you have segment and amplitude. Uh, is that right? Like tracking stuff? So we um, just, we just, we just have amplitude. We don't have segment. Um, and, you know, I think basically, you know, so data about like the person's utilization is all captured in amplitude. It goes into Redshift. And then this sort of, sort of, I guess like ETL essentially happens within our MySQL tables, but then we have like a nightly job that kind of copies this information from, you know, like our MySQL schema into our, what we call like our Redshift, our, our data science schema, which houses a bunch of sort of like tables that manipulate this product information. And then from there, we take this sort of like stuff in the DS schema, use Workato to kind of push this information to whether it's Marketo or Salesforce. Um, and again, I think like one thing that I wanted to highlight was that it took some time, actually a lot of time to gain the trust to actually, you know, do all this. Because I think, you know, for instance, within Workato, all of my queries have like, it, it mentions, you know, the name, like my name, Workato Jason Blog, um, just because internally they will see who is responsible for essentially making all these queries. And I think, you know, we try to make sure, like 
really help people understand that one, Workado isn't just about ETL, like our, our IT team is actually not really using it for ETL, um, but understanding that if you are kind of querying just like the database that you need to be really mindful that like you can't just, you know, change stuff up. And I think that's kind of where it's the, the constant sort of, you know, you kind of need to demonstrate, you know, that you understand stuff that, you know, you build trust with your teammates across the organization because with trust, you know, you can then do a lot of things. Right. Uh, that makes sense. And I guess like somewhat related uh, question, but I'm curious, like today, um, so that data that you're aggregating in, in the background, uh, is that used then to um, trigger automation or to trigger like specific types of, of nurture flows? I know you mentioned that you folks were using autopilot. It sounds like you're moving off of it. I think autopilot, like the initial kind of strong value prop of it is that it connects well with these different analytic systems and you can fire um, events accordingly. So yeah, curious to hear how you're uh, thinking about using this aggregated um, user data and, and product information to then trigger nurture uh, campaigns. Right, well, so right now we don't, um, we, we, we do have nurtures that are based off of, you know, just a lot of the data frankly, from the red, from Redshift, because pretty much the whole connection, all the data from all the data within Marketo comes via the Workado ETL that I set up. Um, but I think kind of one of the, the things that we realized is that if we wanted to have essentially real time information kind of coming in from Redshift or really MySQL into Marketo, um, essentially there was like, we needed to have like an on-prem agent to facilitate this. So this was kind of just like, we needed to basically upgrade our instance of Workata to, to do this, um, which we which we have. And now it's kind of, and I've worked with our lifecycle team to say, hey, you know, we have this option now, um, but like, let's be very mindful what we want to bring into, you know, our Marketo instance. I think we might have maybe, I want to say like 50 columns total or like you just data points. And, you know, if you have like the ability to now just connect any sort of like field, um, you're going to very quickly junk up the system. And like, it's something that I'm really mindful of, like, let's really just start with the use case and why, and then let's build around that versus just, you know, you know, send everything over to the end sort of platforms. Yeah. And actually, so I'm going to, this I think is a great segue into Andrew's question, which is when, when you start, this is like one of the fears, I think, of any engineering team, when you start like lowering the barrier to being able to do integration work, then you run the risk of having pollution of data because now everyone is pushing stuff all over the place. You run the risk of having five different systems that are kind of doing the same thing. And you have this gray area of who owns that pipeline. So I think, yeah, to Andrew's point, like how do you folks think about who owns um, yeah, all the, the different elements of this data engineering, like integrity at the source, integrity um, at the destination and maintenance, but also like um, archiving stuff that is no longer being used. Yeah, that's a mouthful. I mean, I think, um, so I, I mean, I would say that, you know, from like a data integrity perspective, that's definitely, you know, like our data engineering and our data science, you know, teams, I think just like making sure that the tables that you have within your warehouse actually are you know are accurate are robust um i think when it comes to more of just kind of like the end use of this information i think at least from what i've seen so far just having been here it feels like that's really kind of shifting in terms of that's really kind of you know whether it's myself or like our our sales ops person who's kind of like responsible for essentially like deprecating auditing constantly auditing to see hey like what information we have in here that's actually relevant um you know i think from like an what i call end user sort of like 
solutions that we have, you know, that's kind of talking to the, the you know, the creator, if you will. We have, you know, Marketo, Salesforce, Pendo. Um, we have a few other technologies, but I think um, understanding, you know, what columns or what fields that you have within each of these platforms and if they're actually still relevant, because I think, you know, all these platforms were, you know, the exception of Marketo was, was set up before my time. And a lot of the sort of like the, the ETLs, the jobs that kind of um, were designed to essentially insert information into these platforms, um, those people are no longer here. So it's like a big part of it is like going back to the whole maintenance and understanding what was built, like what were these things that were built that were using models or just like things that our engineering folks had done and is it still relevant? Can we still trust it? Like, if not, should we kind of like rip it out? If we do rip it out, like, will it accidentally have unintended consequences? So it's just a whole process of like maintenance. <laughs> right. Uh, and actually, I'm curious in the in the chat if anyone has uh, a good solution for this. I um, and, and I know Jason can and talk about one tool that you guys use in the background, but something that I, I struggle with, and I've seen a couple products that do it out there, but would love to hear from the chat if anyone has found something successful on like how you create kind of a metadata layer on top of the different fields and um, and sets of information that you have in, in Salesforce or Marketo. Like every time I look at the like API or like the objects in Salesforce, there's always like ARR, ARV2, ARR new deprecated, ARR V3. And it's so frustrating <laughs> because they're still in there. Some of them get populated, some don't, and you don't really know what they mean. And like for the same record, you're gonna have like two different values of ARR new and ARR post carve new. Uh, like that kind of stuff is incredibly hard to, to maintain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like just at least within our CRM, I mean, like last year we, we had like, you know, four fields around just like, um, what we like our equivalent of ARR, um, but like, you know, we had them live, but then we don't know if they're still actually useful. So we actually like on like the sales upside, we'd like it, we at least remove it from like the end user. So they can't see it, but like, you know, I, I can see it and I'm just like, well, you know, <laughs> like again, and so that that's kind of where it's like, it's the, it's a challenge of, um, and I, and I think maybe because like, you know, I, on the go-to-market side, I think we're much more open to like, hey, well, let's try, try things out. Like, let's just see like what what works, what what doesn't. But I think at least, um, kind of having the perspective of like, we don't want to just like try something and then it completely backfires or like it doesn't work within like a month or two, which obviously has happened. Um, but it's kind of just because like then there's all this like cleanup that you have to do. But I think, um, I think that's kind of where at least my perspective is at Patreon, like all this sort of like data integrity, data accuracy really comes from within the warehouse, which like our data science team owns. And then it's kind of like the application, like the kind of like, I think you mentioned like the data mark or like there's a difference between like data operation operationalization versus just like data to just track stuff. Um, and I think, you know, right now from my perspective, like go to market and um, some of the other teams at the company, like we're kind of responsible for like, how does this actually, what do we do with this information? Um, whereas I think on the data science side, it's more just like, we need to make sure that this information is actually, you know, accurate. It's robust. Like we can trust it. Yeah. And that's actually a topic that, uh, you brought up in our, in our conversation that I thought was super interesting. And, and you had like something specific where you're saying like, it's, it's important to focus on like the readiness for operationalization of data. Uh, and maybe do you want to talk a little bit about how you think about that and, I mean, first play, what does it mean? And how do you ensure that the data you have is operational and, and ready for use? For sure. So, I mean, I think like the way that I think about just like data as just like for analytics and tracking versus operationalization, I think 
in operationalization, I think there's a much higher degree of real time availability of information. So whether that's kind of like, what is the user doing with the product? Like, is there anything new that that's happened? Um, whereas I would say on like the, just the general analytics, it's much more, Hey, like we need this information to build a model, to do some sort of analysis around like what's happening. And so I think like, that's a big distinction between um, just the timeliness of that information. And I think timeliness is important because when we think about how you're moving data from, you know, production MySQL table to like a table that, you know, is kind of essentially being manipulated within another schema, um, that timeliness is huge because, you know, you don't want to be querying something that's in production. It might tax kind of your system. And so that's, it kind of goes back to, Hey, like go to market. What exactly do you actually need? Um, and what is the business case here? And, you know, most importantly, how quickly do you need this information? Because chances are like, while yes, there might be certain cases where the need to have this in real time is super important. It's, I think it really is kind of like case specific, case specific in which, you know, there are many aspects of like a, a records profile that you don't necessarily need right away, but if you did have it right away, like it's super like, you know, game changer. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's that element of uh, what's needed in real time, what can be bashed every every day or every other day. Um, I'm curious also from uh, like, you know, similar to what we were talking about in terms of accuracy and documentation, right? Like the whole thing of like the ARR v2, v3, right? there's always that risk. And I see this happen a lot at companies where you have this kind of deprecated field or this field that's not well documented and someone is going to go and run an analysis that's going to give you is going to paint a picture that's completely different from what reality is. Uh, and that like from an operational standpoint means your data isn't really ready to be used even from, you know, by an analyst to build these reports. How do you folks kind of address that problem? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think um, we use um, this thing called Datafold, which helps a lot. Um, so Datafold essentially helps with data observability. So it kind of sits on top of our Redshift instance. It really kind of provides this metadata, if you will, of what exactly um, you know, is happening within your warehouse. And so it, it, it's really helpful to understand um, provenance. So how is the table created? Um, what columns are available? What's the primary key? And then, you know, I think as a kind of like marketing operations person, you can work with, you know, someone within data science to understand, hey, like, okay, this is what we're trying to do. You know, these are the segmentations that we're trying to create. This is our use case. Um, what do we have available? Um, and, you know, from a, you know, frequency perspective, like it's very easy to kind of understand, Hey, well, this table is updated this many times. Like this is what we have here. Um, and then really kind of just, you know, have like a, a mind meld, if you will, of, okay, like we have this information, like, let's just actually operationalize this and start doing stuff with this, with this data. Right. That makes sense. I think what's interesting is that since you were saying like kind of the integrity of the whole system is to some extent measured at the lay at the data warehouse layer, then having that documentation means that you can also start documenting um, what you're pulling back out from CRM or map uh, and make sure that at least there's like this one central place where all the systems are documented rather than potentially having documentation that's in every system and not accessible to everyone. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think that's kind of where, you know, having essentially trust in the fact that the information in our data warehouse is completely robust. Whereas, you know, at other organizations, it's kind of like, Hey, like you have like these old fields or like, whether it's in your CRM or like in Marketo, um, you know, it's, it's kind of just like, Hey, it's there. You can like essentially have Marketo folks remove it, but like, you know, why do we have, or like, you know, hide the field. Um, but 
you know, it just junks up the system and, you know, as much as possible trying to, you know, as an ops person, just really trying to mitigate that <laughs> right. if at all possible. Makes sense. Uh, and so maybe while we're on the uh, the subject of, of the stack, what are maybe like some of the tools that you folks use that you think are, yeah, are relevant to companies that are, um, you know, either growing, that have a PLG motion, that are global, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, so I think definitely, um, you know, for, for us, I've really liked using, so um, Transcend um, does our data deletion um, and Catch helps our rights management. Um, that's like K-E-T-C-H. Um, I think especially as a international company, um, it's super critical. You know, I think like if you put my, putting on my marketing hat on, you know, I think a big part of just all this is GDPR and making sure that we're being compliant. Um, and so I think having um, these technologies and I'm working, you know, in tandem with like my colleagues in legal to just like, you know, to stand this up to make sure that we have these solutions integrated with, you know, CRM with Marketo. Um, and like, it's actually working just, you know, doing periodic checks to make sure that, hey, everything is working fine. Um, I think those are super helpful. We just launched, I think, 12 languages, you know, yesterday, actually. Um, so like just continuing to localize the product. And so, you know, when we are localizing into different markets, making sure that, you know, there are obviously jurisdictional differences in terms of just rights um, and privacy. And so understanding, hey, like we um, have technologies that in this case, our, our legal team is kind of the end user of these technologies um, to essentially say, hey, like we are being, um, you know, we're, we're doing a good job in terms of just being compliant wherever we, wherever we are. That makes sense. And, and I was curious, because this is a question that comes up a lot. How uh, do you folks at, at Patreon think about um, like consent, right? Like if, if a user signs up, like what does that allow you to do from a marketing perspective when it comes to enrichment, to anything like the marketing? Um, and how did you, yeah, how do you reevaluate those boundaries with legal? Right, right. So I mean, I think like there's within, if you go to our website or if you go into incognito, there's like kind of like the, what we call like the catch pop-up that shows um, kind of just like your standard sort of um, boilerplate language. And then if you hit accept, um, basically all the, there's a bunch of information that's being, you know, like, like any other company that we have just, you know, data about like, just like metadata. Um, but I think when it comes to just actually kind of the data enrichment piece, I think that's kind of where we have, you know, I think kind of like what we call OAuth. So if you kind of go in through our sort of our flow, um, you can connect your socials. And then from kind of like having, if you've connected your socials, um, we kind of have like a way to just understand, hey, can we see like, you know, basically if you're connecting your socials, we can see like how many followers you have and how many like kind of like, do you have an engaged following? And for us, like that's a kind of like, you know, I think in other organizations, like in more traditional B2B, um, you know, kind of all of this sort of data about the person, like kind of like their, essentially like the demographic, if you will, of, hey, like this person is kind of like meets these sort of thresholds. This makes sense for us as like a business to reach out to this person. Um, I think that's kind of where, um, you know, how we think about just like enrichment and being able to essentially identify, hey, like, can we bring this person down the funnel or like it makes sense for us to have like an actual conversation with, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think so maybe like on the traditional, more more traditional, sorry, B2B side, like essentially your OAuth flow is almost the equivalent of giving like a corporate Business email address because it allows you to then obtain information from third parties around like how much content these folks are creating, potentially like how much, like how many other platforms they have, their social following, all that kind of stuff. 
Exactly. Like, you know, I mean, like with Bumbora or like these other things, it's like, I mean, if you just give a Gmail, it might be difficult to actually like, you know, do anything with that information. <laughs> yeah. Um, that makes sense. And, um, and I'm curious on, on that one. Um, then is there a reason not to necessarily like to like enforce a, um, the equivalent of the corporate signup, like essentially why aren't you folks necessarily enforcing the OAuth, uh, sign up on the creator flow? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I think like it's honestly just like, you know, I've been here for about a year and a half. Like it's, I know it's stuff that we've thought about, but it's just not something that we've honestly prioritized. Um, and I think, um, you know, from like an internal perspective, our, so like the moment that a person signs up, that's part of what we call our login experience, um, which currently sits within our product side. Whereas I think like right now, the marketing team essentially owns what we call logged out pages. And so it's kind of like this, sort of, I would call like middleware, if you will, of, hey, like if a person signs up immediately after sign up, is this still like a marketing thing or is this more of like a product thing? And it, it kind of, you know, figuring out how do we actually, you know, one, develop sort of a strategy around that and then two, actually go ahead and build that um, and, you know, test it. I think that's honestly just been like a continual sort of like debate around how do we, um, you know, like for instance, make OAuth mandatory. Um, you know, I think for, you know, when I came on board, one of the things that was surprising is, you know, having been at a, you know, B2B SaaS in, you know, my previous roles that, you know, we don't ask for phone number, for instance, whereas like, that's a very common thing that you have like on your form. Um, but for us, you know, for our specific use case, it really doesn't matter if you have like a phone number, like we don't have like a speed to lead sort of thing here in place where, you know, yes, you like might be super eager and engaged, but like, if you don't have the following, you don't have an engaged audience. Um, you, you can totally start a Patreon, but like, will our product actually kind of like have that product market fit for your needs? Probably not. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess it opens up a, a question that I think is is interesting in figuring out how do you folks think about enrichment and like, how do you go, like this is less traditional, like again, as you mentioned, right? Like the standard names, like the Bimboras, the Clearbit, ZoomInfo, all that is gonna give you zero information that's relevant for your audience. How do you go about looking for, you know, enrichment sources and how do you uh, test those? I think that's like a learning that I think a lot of B2B marketers can can take from also is figuring out, like, how do you look for other sources that can give you a competitive edge or some additional information? Yeah, I mean, so like I think, um, you know, at least within the B2B space, I definitely feel like LinkedIn is a very sort of engaged sort of platform. And I think that. You know, we use a like so there's the whole creator economy, influencer economy space continues to heat up. There's a bunch of different sort of um, essentially like products that are designed for marketers to do influencer marketing. Um, so there's like Aspire IQ, Creator IQ, like I think a few other um, players that do very similar things that are they're, they're products that are designed for marketers to basically identify influencers to work with for kind of like primarily consumer brands. Um, but the nice thing is that, however, like these um, platforms have a lot of information about these people, um, you know, and specifically kind of like, just like, Hey, like, is this a, a brand that we should be brand as when I say brand, I'm really talking about as a creator, like, is this some that, that someone that we want to work with? Um, and so when a person, you know, OAuths, um, we're able to essentially kind of connect this information and say, Hey, like, okay, like there's additional information that, that we have, I think for, for us, where kind of like the, the thing that's, that's different is that you know, for us, like a person can only OAuth really just, just once. Um, there isn't really a need to kind of like, just like within the B2B space where, you know, you can't like, yes, there are 
a creator or like a, a sort of like a prospect could sign up for like on a lead form once, but like there isn't really a need to kind of sign up again and again and again, unless you kind of create really enticing lead magnets. Whereas I feel like on like the Patreon side, there really isn't a way to kind of like again and again, create lead magnets to incentivize like a, a creator to what we call OAuth. But like we do have their, you know, we, we know that we have their social handle because like they've connected. And so there's a way that we can essentially automate refreshing of this data because you've connected your your socials. We understand that, hey, this is your your vanity. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's been it's a very like like I mentioned earlier that it's the same, I would say, process where if a person uses their Gmail, like in B2B world, if a person uses their Gmail instead of their kind of like their, their work email, well, is this is this lead actually like a good lead? Like potentially could be a good lead, um, but just more often than not, probably not because they might not be as like deeper in the funnel. And that's, I would say like the same thing with us where, you know, it's not, um, we don't mandate, we don't make it mandatory to OAuth. Um, if you do all OAuth, it probably is a signal that you are much more engaged. Um, but like, and like so far that, that seems to be the case, but it's like, and I think for that reason, it's kind of why we haven't really made it mandatory. But again, like, I think like, opinions change, um, maybe it might be something that we consider um, down the road. I, I right. Don't know. And I think it's one of those where I think the the challenge that I see with a lot of companies is like understanding who owns the customer lifecycle, because it creates kind of two disjointed experiences where now there's like, you know, there's one team that's potentially optimizing for signups, one team optimizing for retention, and not necessarily for monetization. And even in, in B2B, right, like one thing that I, um, I, I think is a bit of a pity. I think it's fine to have people sign up with Gmails or personal emails because you want, you know, more people to use the product and they might then, you know, talk about the product to someone else or they might just be a, a prosumer. Um, but there's rarely in companies a flow that will say, oh, if, you know, someone is reaching the right level of engagement, how do we now get them to actually enter the more like business flow? Like it's almost like saying if someone signs up with a personal email, uh, signs up with their email for Patreon, but then, you know, they exhibit the right behavior. How do we then get them to OAuth and tell them this is actually going to unlock things? And I think product doesn't necessarily have that incentive because the main thing it unlocks is the ability for marketing and go to market to get more information. I think that's where there's generally this um, kind of Chinese wall to some extent between like these two organizations that are focused on slightly uh, different things. So I'm curious, like if, if you folks are starting to have with you kind of being like in like data, so very close to the data science team. So like engineering org, but with like a very strong marketing background, like are you finding ways to bridge that gap a little bit? For sure. And, you know, I, I mean, I think definitely it's, I think a big part of it is just, you know, essentially where you sit. I think like with, with data science in particular, we're kind of really agnostic of, you know, like we just want to really help support our stakeholders, like make better decisions so that we can then, you know, like grow the company. And I feel like, um, by now moving from like a marketing team to data science, I like, can be much more essentially like third party, if you will, to be able to say, Hey, like, I kind of don't have really any sort of like agenda. Whereas, you know, I think, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it can obviously be a thing where, you know, if you're sitting in product or you're sitting in go to market, there might be sort of like a tension. And I think it, it's, it honestly just kind of boils down to like resourcing alongside prioritization and then how do you make the case around what priorities to kind of you know go after um and so i think it's it's on it's honestly just like a, a tension that i've seen especially at like product like plg companies where you know it's less about kind of like a big part of kind of your growth loop if you will is like the virality of it all and you know 
people just talking about it and then how do you kind of like essentially who owns that and i feel like that's the part where it's virality can't necessarily be owned it's kind of like it's like all encompassing um and I, I i don't know if it's like fair to kind of like have that burden be on one team versus another it's kind of like right. just like very holistic that makes sense uh and maybe before we take the uh the q a i had one one last question which i think again based on on what you're saying like you folks have a really awesome engineering team and a lot of plg teams have like a core and a very strong engineering organization that's you know and engineers are typically very opinionated um how do you think about the like build versus buy when it comes to yeah like technology <clears throat> that's going to be you know middleware between like core product and um and go to market stack yeah i mean honestly it's like a continual question i mean i think when you essentially decouple the product like itself like patreon there are certainly like we have a lot of different integrations with you know uh platforms that you know creators use and so like one conversation is like to what extent should we be you know essentially building all these things internally versus you know just partnering with partners um and then kind of just like understanding these trade-offs around just you know thinking about back to like just go to market pipelines like is this something that you know the engineering team should be building versus like should we essentially allow go to market to self-serve and i think with all with all of this it really kind of just i mean can't really i guess like sorry to answer can't really answer the, that question but it's just like you know it really kind of depends on the situation and i think as long as um you know you can make the essentially what we call you know opportunity assessment to say hey like it makes sense to build versus buy um, but I think a big part of it, that build aspect is like the maintenance of it all. And like, especially when it comes to kind of just like, you know, with, you know, just making sure that you have documentation or you have like the ability to make changes on like pipelines, if like people, you know, change roles or, or whatever. And I think like, that's a, a huge thing I, that I think like often like, isn't necessarily discussed. I feel like frequently when it comes to just like marketing operations, like I think in you know, until being in this role, I, I, I never really did much stuff in say SQL, or I didn't really do, like I kind of just assumed that a lot of the information that I had in my CRM and Marketo was, yeah, I mean, like a lot of it might not be good, but like this is information that we have. And so being in this role has allowed me to just understand, hey, like what does provenance mean? <laughs> like, you know, I think like that was, a, uh, that was a term that I really didn't kind of use, but like understanding provenance is huge because then you can basically know okay, like this table is actually useful versus like this other table, probably not. Um, right. That's helpful. Yeah. And and how, I mean, and this is like this build versus buy is something that uh, a lot of, you know, folks here uh, run into, right? Where you have this like piece of tech that you think is going to help you self-serve for this like particular use case or things like that and remove the need to have your item be added at the, the end of the engineering um, sprint or backlog. How... Um, what would you recommend marketing ops do to be able to better fight that build versus buy uh, battle and and potentially manage to you know get their tool brought in either for like a proof of concept or anything like how do you win that battle when it seems like very often mops has um, the lower I mean engineering has the upper hand in the conversations because it's easier for them to push back yeah and I, I think definitely um, this touches upon um, you know just one thing that my my sense is that within organizations like i think within marketing teams i think marketing generally understands that marketing operations is a more technical role i would argue however that not all teams like uh, like across the organization there might not be as much sort of understanding that like hey marketing operations is technical and so i think 
as a marketing operations person, if you're trying to kind of go ahead and really advocate for some sort of new sort of MarTech or some sort of thing that is going to be, that's going to lean more towards buying versus having it built internally, I'd really say it's kind of just like, you know, think a couple of things. One, really have your business case really kind of like built out. And I think a big part of that is just, you know, the, the receipts. Like if you have tickets that have been created like over a year ago, um, that have basically been put on the back burner. That's a great sort of example of like, hey, this is like a problem that continues to be a problem. I think that's like the first thing, just having a very defined use case. I think then the second one is really just understanding kind of like, you know, partnering with your your teams in IT, um, in infrastructure, security, like whichever team kind of like owns sort of just like that, essentially the data um, to really kind of just like help them understand that basically you you have the chops, like you understand what's kind of needed and, and, and more importantly, why and how um, there's like a degree of risk involved in just essentially allowing these sort of pipelines to flow. And then from there, it's honestly just kind of like, okay, we'll like let, let those folks like within um, infrastructure help you understand, hey, from like a cost perspective, how long is it going to take for them to actually do this? And like, do they want to be maintaining it? And I think from there, like at least this is all last summer, honestly, it took like a few months, but like that was kind of at least how for me, I was able to kind of like push this through. And I think like, again, a big part of it is, you know, trust is super critical. You really need to build those relationships, not just within marketing, but really throughout the organization um, to, to make things happen. Yeah, I love it. So kind of like making sure that they that you've done your homework to make sure you understand what it would take to actually build internally and potentially find find some allies internally, like infrastructure or whatever IT that can back you and saying this is actually a good solution to make sure maintenance and security are easier to uh, to track and actually like bring in some open source code to build ourselves. Um, sure. That makes a ton of sense. So um, I know we're getting close to the, the top of the hour and there's a bunch of questions in uh, the question section. Thanks for asking those and feel free to ask more. Um, so Andrew had a, an awesome question of um, around process, I guess, and how, yeah, we're talking about this, you know, potentially buying and we just talked about having like IT involved and then engineering because they're going to compare. So um, yeah, like who needs to be involved? And I guess like, of course, it depends on the project. But if we take, for example, like your recent kind of purchase of Workado, which I think is like this middleware that sits between these teams, how did you go about that? And is there like a process that you have in place? Yes, I mean, there wasn't really a process. It kind of figured it out along the way. Um, you know, I think first it was, okay, but like our sales ops team, they were the folks that had created the ticket to begin with. So like they had like the specific pain point. Um, so from there was kind of, you know, I, I did basically an audit of what are all the tickets that we have available in JIRA that says that's like essentially go to market related that we could solve for using a sort of middleware like Workato. Um, and then from there it was, you know, we had a big spreadsheet and then it was kind of just working with um, like my partners in data science um, who then looped in um, our data engineering team who, you know, sat within our infrastructure team. Um, and, you know, over the course of like a few weeks, it was just like, okay, can y'all actually just take a look at this? Like, take a look at this spreadsheet. Like, I know it's a lot, but like, just like let us know because, hey, this has been a pain point for like almost a year at this point. Um, and then from there, it was kind of just like, though, so, you know, it was sales ops, it was, you know, data data science and data engineering, um, which, you know, sat within kind of like this sort of IT infrastructure sort of domain. Um, and then from there, it was kind of like, hey, is this something that y'all can do? And then from there, it was a very easy process of, okay, like um, once, um, you know, they were looped into kind of like the demos that we had done. And, you know, as soon as they saw the product demo, they were like, okay, yeah, like <laughs> let them do this. And obviously like there were like, I would say just kind of like the post 
sort of um, procurement around, again, like just privacy and like policy and like administrations so making sure that kind of like very few people are actually doing this because, hey, like we, you can basically do a lot with this. Um, and then that's like, like, that's a constant thing where, you know, even now um, IT, they're starting to do stuff with Workado. Um, one of the things that I mentioned to them was, hey, like, should we just like, should y'all be kind of owning the Workado relationship? Um, and I think like that is something that I'm kind of advocating for that they should be kind of taking on because I do think that like for these sort of like middleware technologies, I would argue that infrastructure like IT really should kind of have like a like sort of strong visibility around what's happening. Um, but I think like right now we just honestly don't have like the like all the people there in place to just like make this happen. But it's something that I've already like surfaced that hey like <laughs> maybe y'all can like just provide more guidance on this one. Right, and that makes sense. I think it's super interesting because like IT ultimately, I mean that's part of their role, right? Of like maintaining like this infrastructure and like all the technologies that are coming in. I think engineering is is always different because it's almost like a right of like first refusal, right? Like where. It's essentially making sure that you pass that bar where engineering is not saying, ah, no, we shouldn't use this. This is bad. Um, and then the rest is more like, is it going to help? Um, that's super helpful. And actually talking about like, you know, the size of the IT team, um, there was a question of like, how big is your, um, how big is the MOPS team today at Patreon? And um, maybe like, how is it broken up into responsibilities? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like, you know, I think, Atumos has this great sort of four pillar of like what is marketing operations. I think for us really, there isn't like, at least currently we don't actually have a marketing operations team. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's still like, I think when it comes to campaign operations, we have a lifecycle marketing team that um, really just does a lot of email. Our product marketing team um, really, at least right now owns like Pendo. So just like actually getting stuff like these in-app messages, like live, like um, product marketing kind of does that. I would say from like a, campaign analytics perspective that really just sits within data science. Um, so channel reporting and this sort of thing. Um, and so I think, and then from like a dev mops perspective, I think that's kind of something that I've been able to facilitate honestly vis-a-vis -vis with Workado. Um, and I think it's kind of just like, there's a need, but who is specifically is doing that, I think kind of is really kind of dependent on, you know, the, the makeup of the organization. Like I've been at other organizations where there really wasn't a data science team. Um, so. You know, I think that was like a responsibility that fell more, you know, towards like, you know, especially from a, in terms of just like analytics and reporting, like that was something that um, in previous roles in marketing operations, I've had to do as well. That makes sense. And so today, how, what would be the process if let's say like sales is asking for some new kind of aggregation or some new kind of segmentation, like persona segmentation or whatever that they want to see propagated into Salesforce, like how, what would, what would be the process there to do that? Yep. So, I mean, like my, um, my counterpart in like in sales ops, we, we also, we, like when I first joined, we all reported to the same person. Um, and so really it's kind of just like, um, you know, he'll reach out to like, we have like, obviously all these different Slack channels <laughs> kind of just like, Hey, like, you know, first like just chat about it, like in person and then just like post something in Slack that says, Hey, like we're looking to build this. Um, and then it's really kind of like, um, our sales ops person is also in Workado as well. And so it's kind of just like, hey, like they can kind of do what they need to do. Um, usually they'll have run it by either myself or like another one of my colleagues in data science to make sure that the query itself within, you know, within Redshift is is good. Um, and then, you know, they'll set it live. Um, and, that's, and then we also really work very closely with our CSMs at Workado to make sure that, hey, um, <laughs> does this look good? Like, should we be doing this better? Got it. That makes sense. Yes, yeah, so it's pretty fast as long as the... I mean, I guess that's like one of the things that you, you kept on mentioning, right? Once the use case is clear, 
then it's going to be a matter of like translating that to some kind of like technical requirement. And you're saying that's like something that you would be doing, or is it someone in the, like the translation from, yeah, like business requirement to like pseudo technical or even like technical. Yeah, is that I think you? that's, so that's, that was, I would say like myself, but I think like I've really tried to teach folks internally to kind of just like self-serve. And so I, I'd say like at this point, there's probably two other people like both on sales ops that have like a really good foundation of how do we use Mercado. Um, and I, I think like my, at least my goal is that like, you know, at least one of the folks on lifecycle can actually do this as well, just because I think like they're going to have a lot more sort of need oh, and awareness around what to do. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to be a blocker as well. And I think like part of it also is just like, again, like a trust in, Hey, like if you do this, like, let's make sure that, um, you know, people are involved and like, we, we like, so for instance, it's just making sure that you change your query. So that's not, you know, it's not my name. Like it's, it's your actual name so that like our data eng folks can understand, okay, like these are the people that are actually like making these changes um, within kind of like the warehouse. And it's yeah. not, it's not making changes in the warehouse. It's just really taking stuff from the warehouse and putting it into like an end solution, like, you know, your CRM or your map. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you were mentioning about making sure that as a, as an ops person, maybe mops or, or sales ops, making sure that you have a good enough understanding of the data structure, like feasibility of stuff in the background to build that um, confidence with the, uh, the engineering team when you're passing on requests. For sure. And I'm just seeing Jasmine's chat. Um, yeah. So specifically, um, so there's sales ops, um, you know, in this case, marketing was purchasing the, the tool. So in this case, mark, like marketing higher ups need to be aware of it. Um, then it was data science, um, data engineering. And with data engineering sits, you know, in our organization under infrastructure. So our, our head of infrastructure was also aware of all of this and, you know, they had to just sign off as well. Sweet. Um, there's one question from Amari pretty early on, uh, where he was mentioning they use heap to track, uh, product usage. You guys are using amplitude. So that's a similar product. Uh, and yeah, the question is like, how, how are you using it? So I think we talked about on the one hand, it's like getting analytics, but yeah, curious, like, is it like you're using the dashboarding functionalities or just as a pipe? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like the, um, right now, so we do have like a ton of different dashboards within amplitude. Um, but I think even still, um, I would say that there's end users in this case, folks within go to market or product, there might be, um, like they might use it, but for like a more sort of robust sort of just analysis will internally just kind of connect the amplitude tables to just like all the other stuff that we have in Redshift, And then, you know, we'll create some sort of analysis, but I think for really quick sort of questions, like, Hey, like what conversion do we have from this specific product moment to like this thing? Like what's the funnel look like? Amplitude is a super easy product to, to use. And I think like another thing that Amplitude has is this sort of cohort sync that they have with Marketo. So that's something that we also really want to explore as well. Got it. And do you, so do you have like a, um, a BI layer on top of the, uh, on top of Redshift or? Yep. Yep. We use mode. Got it. So that's where kind of like the core reporting is happening. Then like, there's like kind of ad hoc, like real quick stuff that's going to happen in um, Amplitude. Yeah. Amplitude and then um, everything else in there. Uh, that makes sense. Um, and I guess last question, uh, cause we're getting yeah, close to the top of the hour. It's like, who do you report to today? Like, do you roll into CMO or CDO? So I actually report into our, our data science team. So one of the data science managers, I report into her, um, she reports into our head of data science who reports into the whole, uh, I guess, like FP and a, like our, like our CFO basically. Um, so within that sort of like, um, realm. Interesting. And then, and the, okay, so that's FPNA and then like 
the marketing org rolls into COO or into uh, CRO or CRO. Yeah. Yeah. So like with, yeah. So like within our go to market organization, there's like a success marketing, um, you know, sales, like the traditional thing. And so previously I reported into our, our VP of marketing, um, who, you know, rolled up into our CRO. Super interesting. Awesome. Well, thanks a ton for, uh, for all the insights, I guess, like, are there any, uh, kind of parting words or anything that you think like the, maybe the one thing that people should uh, take out of the session? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's just, it's it's a fun time to be in, in operations. I think, you know, especially in companies that are constantly changing, you know, I think like both the like companies, but the landscape itself of like what's available, what can we do? Um, I think it's constantly changing. It's it's so fascinating. Um, definitely did not expect that I'd be in in operations this long. Um, and you know, I think um, it's it it just keeps it fun um, and always like a different challenge to work on. Awesome. Yeah, I think on, on my side, the big thing that <clears throat> I take out from this is that it's really critical for um, anyone, mainly mops, I think, to have a good understanding of what's possible or not. So making sure that you have a close relationship with your engineering team to. You don't need to know how to write code, but pseudo code is really important to understand like feasibility to make sure that you have credibility whenever you're pushing requests down to the data science team or the engineering team. I think that's like one of the things where I'm really hoping that, you know, five years from now, there'll, there'll no longer be articles that say, oh, it's like your marketing team doesn't understand what they're asking for. Uh, because that's the kind of like inherent thing that we have to break. I think it's a very wrong perception. And and Mops is, I think, really there to break that gap between like feasibility and like the go-to-market needs. Definitely, definitely. Sweet. Well, thanks everyone for for joining us, and yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, thanks again, Jason. Uh, looking forward to talking to you very soon. And yeah, uh, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, just find me on LinkedIn, and if you're in any of these Slack communities, you can probably find me there as well. <laughs> awesome. Up. All right. Sweet. Well, have a good rest of your day and we'll talk to you very soon. Likewise. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.